Thank you all for coming. It's good to see you. And thanks for continuing the study on vocation. Um, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer to get us started. Father in heaven, thank you for your oversight of us, your care of us, the way that you provide for and uphold and sustain us. Thank you that we even have life itself. I take that for granted. And I even complain about it. Please forgive me and all of us for the ways that we um, lack gratitude for your mercies and for your grace. Uh, Please humble us under the goodness and authority and truth and power of your word that we would grow into men and women of the gospel and servants of the Most High King doing good works for your name's sake. We want to glorify you and we want to enjoy you forever now and in the new heavens and new earth. So I pray that you would broaden our gaze, that we might see uh, with biblical eyes the far reaches of Christ's lordship over our lives and over this world that you've placed us in. So help us now, Father, to learn and to grow together in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. So uh, just quick overview bringing us back up. There's some new faces in the room. Uh, This is the course on vocation. What am I called to do and to be? And in the first week, we looked at the context of calling, the caller and the called. We talked about how your life is not your own. God is the caller and we're the called. And we're going to find our callings ultimately in him, in his word, as he's revealed it. We are to love Christ by obedience to his call, obedience to his commands, and pursue our purpose, which we said, it's like the shorter catechism asks, what is our chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Then uh, last week, we looked at the concept of calling. Talked about the meaning of means, uh, that we are a part of a, a royal priesthood, that all work, therefore, uh, is done for the Lord, is uh, honorable and holy, that there is no sacred secular divide in the way that modernity thinks of it. <clears throat> and all that you do for God has meaning and worth. Um, God loves his people, we said, through his people, through the works of service that you give as you love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And that it is loving your neighbor, which is the framework for faithful calling. So the context, the concept, and now today we're going to cover the content, or as much of it as we can, the content of our calling. So what is the scope of this summons? Um, Christ is Lord over every sphere of life. And you and I are called to glorify and enjoy him in all the things that we do. Everything. Down to the most minuscule detail. Uh, We're going to look, if we have time, at the dominion mandate from Genesis. Maybe you call it the cultural mandate, as well as the great commission or the redemptive evangelical mandate. 
And how do those two things balance out in priority today for us? How are we to think of them and how are we to to contribute to them and try to obey God in moving them forward? This will be the last week of the um, maybe the philosophy of vocation. Um, These first three have been sort of just um, getting our bearings. The next four weeks, we're going to move into more practical applications. So calling lived out. Next week, we will start... Uh, looking at our callings in the sphere of our work. We'll also look at down the stream, family, church, society at large, but next week we're going to look at work, and i just give you that heads up. Um, in all of our labor, including our paid jobs as well as all of our work, that's not part of what you're salaried to do, um, as well as in our rest, we're going to try to apply a framework um, to each of those spheres. So how do we understand our calling in our work, in our families, in our church, and in society at large, and any other sphere that you might want to parse out your life to to look at. Um, We'll look at some of the common pitfalls as well as uh, truths that we need to remember. But but for today, we're going to look categorically at the content of our calling. So my goal today is for uh, us to look at, um, first, effectual calling, Um, our calling unto Christ, and then the various spheres over which Christ reigns and calls us onward, as well as the work left to be done in both of those mandates. Um, All right. So the starting point, we need to start with uh, our effectual calling. How many of you have ever heard that term before? Effectual calling, most everybody? Great. Uh, Good theologians. So... um, We mentioned in the history of the progression of the understanding of vocation how um, once we got to Martin Luther, he started to, uh, he pushed back against monasticism that said there's this higher holy sphere and all this menial stuff is avoid that at all costs. And he's the one that kind of opened the door. um, Well, scripture opened the door, but he, you know, drew out the truth that was lost that um, everything that you do for God is valuable, and it's a holy calling. Um, But he really viewed our work as a means by which God blesses the world. It's like a conduit. And so in him there was less of a necessary precursor that one might be saved before they would have a true calling from God. So, and he's not wrong, but uh, Calvin picks that up and, and moves, moves a little further into it to show some redemptive necessity to our calling. So in, in a sense, it's true that rocks do what rocks are called to do. So they don't have to be saved by the blood of the lamb in order to be rocks. So all of creation can be you know, servants of God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And yet, because we talked about how motivation matters, and we really need to look at the why we do things before we do the what, um, that God doesn't just judge us on our externals, but he judges us on the heart behind what we do. So therefore, in that sense, Calvin kind of progressed the thought to say, you can't really be faithful to God in your calling unless you've been first called unto, unless you're one of the elect, unless Christ has died for you, unless you're one of the redeemed. How can you ever, out of right motivation, faithfully live out your calling? unless you've been made a new creation in Christ. Scripture says that 
anything not done from faith is sin. And so uh, in that sense, it's impossible. And in that sense, our effectual calling unto Christ is a precursor for any effective, true calling that we might live out for Christ's kingdom. Okay, so uh, when we think about effectual calling, uh, we think of it in two elements. The external call of the gospel, uh, which goes out to all people, and then the internal call of the Holy Spirit, which is only unto the elect of Christ. So I'm going to try and go through this quickly, but let me read a little bit from uh, Lloyd-Jones in his book called Effectual Calling and Regeneration. Um, So here's just a, a couple snippets. There is the truth of the gospel, and we've already seen that it's part of the work of the Holy Spirit to see that that truth is proclaimed to all and sundry, that uh, that is what we call the general call, a kind of universal offer of the gospel. And then we saw that though the external or general call comes to all, to those who will remain unsaved as well as to those who are saved, obviously some new distinction comes in because some are saved by it. So the question we must consider is this. What is it that establishes the difference between the two groups? Everybody hears it, but only some are saved. So what gives? And the way to answer that question, it seems to me, he says, is to say that the call of the gospel, which has been given to all, is effectual only in some. Now, there's a portion of Scripture which is a perfect illustration of this. Uh, The followers of Christ who were even described as his disciples, they were divided up into two groups. One group decided that they would never listen to him again, and they left him and went home. And when he turned to the others and said, will you go away also? Peter said, this was in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the one group disbelieved and went home. The others, who had heard exactly the same things, stayed with him and wanted to hear more and even rejoiced in it. So what makes the difference? Is it that the word, uh, it is that the word was effectual in the case of the saved in a way that it was not effectual in the case of the unsaved who refused it. Now, we're at a Presbyterian church. We're Reformed theologians. You all know that. That shouldn't be anything new. But it's important that we start with that because um, as we study vocation, and as we study our calling, it is, it's paramount that we see the grandeur of it because of the, who it is that's calling us. We're going to talk about Christ's lordship and what that means in your life. Um, you have to submit a lot to a lord, um, more than we're used to as Americans. We don't even think in that category. I watched uh, once a week um, on Saturday, I try to do daddy-daughter like movie time, so... I try to take a nap if I can while she's watching the movie. But uh, she wanted to watch uh, Cinderella. And uh, so there's a scene in Cinderella where the the prince of the kingdom, you know, his dad is sick and he's dying. And um, he meets her before this happens and is talking about how he's supposed to be marrying for, um, you know, benefit of the kingdom versus marrying for love. And uh, <clears throat> she says, oh, but you shouldn't, shouldn't you be able to marry for love? And he goes, well, you know, I, I, I live to serve the will of the king. He's a good king. He's talking about his dad. <clears throat> that was just part and parcel with what you know, life was like in other places and in other times. That is anathema to us 
And so we really have to work hard. Even good Christians who are committed to the Bible and who come to church regularly, we really have to work hard to think about what it means to have a life submitted to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because every little area of your life needs to be submitted to him. Um, how you think, how you feel, what you do, what you say, um, all of those things in every arena. So um, I'm going to give a little bit of a walk through the scriptures on calling, and it's going to feel overwhelming if you're trying to take notes. <clears throat> so just don't. Um, I'm going to, uh, this is all typed up and you'll be able to get, um, get it on our, our little uh, class website. But I'm just basically going to read to you a number of excerpts from Scripture and, and why those are relevant before we move in a little further. So <clears throat> listen, though, as I go to the frequency of the use of the words like call and called and calling, and particularly as they are in relation to Christ as Lord. <clears throat> so the first one we're going to look at is Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 6. And here it's where we learn that um, Paul was called in order to call others. So Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul writes again to the church in Corinth, about calling in his intro there, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 of 1 Corinthians. And he's talking about how believers are called to be holy uh, and also called into a fellowship with Christ. So he mentioned in this first one, he was called, set apart in order that he might call others. What is it that he's calling and all the apostles were calling others then to do by the power of the Spirit? To also be set apart to belong to Christ. So here he says in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that God, of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom we were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8, you all have heard of the golden chain of redemption. This shows the work of the Holy Spirit in that, like uh, Lloyd-Jones was mentioning. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for all the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is our golden chain of redemption. God will see through to the end. Yep, that's Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. Mm-hmm. Um, a few more here. So stick with me. Just kind of let it soak in. The word does not go out and come back void. It will accomplish its end. And so we'll do a little more chatting in a minute, but let me let him talk first. First um, Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. Here we're looking at a calling unto holiness. And you'll note it's both uh, holiness internal in our hearts as well as holiness external in what we do. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So calling in some way has to do with our hearts and how it's lived out being sanctified. This is the will of God for us, our sanctification. He goes on in 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, here we're going to see a little bit about the confidence in Christ's lordship that we ought to have. So we're called by him. He's Lord. We've heard that 30 times already. Um, Therefore, we ought to have confidence in that, in that holy calling, but not from our works, not confidence from our works, but confidence for our works, for the works in Christ that he gives to us. All right. So hear these words. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Um. On in, uh, Peter writes in his first, the first letter we've got of his, um, chapter 1, he tells us how in our callings we're called to think, act, and feel all in submission to Christ's lordship. He says in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Um, two more. Note the, the vast difference between the Bible, the way the Bible thinks about our calling and our obedience and, and, and how we're going to live a godly life over and against how we think about it. When we hear the word calling, when we hear the word vocation, we're thinking about what job am I going to get? And can I get one with enough money to have the type of lifestyle that I want and still not make God mad at me? Is that not right? I mean, that's why we make decisions about what college to go to, what are we going to study, how are we going to spend our time, who are we going to hang out with, because birds of a feather flock together, and maybe I'll have a one-up in my little network. We, we, this is the end that we think about. Everything he's talking about is being holy. He's not saying... Here's what you do. Here's what you accomplish. Your calling is about these products and these fruits of what you do. He's saying, be holy, be righteous, be set apart. God will bring the end. We're called to be faithful in the means. So in First Peter, no, Second Peter, um, chapter one, read all of like you know three through eleven. But I'm going to quote just ten and eleven. He talks about how we need to hold fast to our callings and test ourselves by our fruit. So I just said that it's not the ends that we're pursuing so much as we need to be righteous in the means. But Peter says also, how do we know if we're being righteous in the means? By our fruit. So he says, he gives this explanation of the knowledge and self-control and godly qualities granted to us in pursuit of our holy callings. And then in verse 10, he says, therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities that I just mentioned, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be um, richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, in a sense, we're, it's the already but not yet. We can't get away from that. In a sense, we're already a part of the kingdom. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But also, we're supposed to test ourselves and look at our works and see if we're living up in accordance with all of these godly qualities that he's told, called us to. Because if we do, if we test our election and calling, if we practice these things, eventually, we're going to have given to us entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're already a part of the kingdom, the local church frankly, is the kingdom of God. And yet there's also this kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God, that we're going to be able to enter into if we hold fast and don't give up. Incidentally, uh, the, basically the story of Hebrews that, we're, that pastors are preaching through is the story that says, keep on believing. Don't give up on Jesus. He's worth it. Hold on tight to the end. And this is what he's telling us here as well. So at root and at core... Our calling is uh, complete submission to Christ, being holy, set apart, uh, living in accordance with his commands, not producing any kind of great fruit that we can then claim or even you know, be proud of. Or That ought not even be the goal. The goal is to be faithful along the way. And if we do that, fruit will come. That's sort of the promise. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, he goes on to talk about uh, confidence in the power of God at work in us who are effectually called unto Christ. 
Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Um, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord, uh, in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This is where he was seated. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is, this is a uh, asterisk, highlight, underline, revisit. Um, there's so much in there. The, the, the power of God in the, by, by, the, by the working of the Holy Spirit is so grandiose and so all-consuming and so overwhelming and so far-reaching. And he, by that power, poured all of that into Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That doesn't mean distant from, that means over. He's in control of, as Lord, every authority. There is no authority that he, is not, that he has to submit to. He is Lord. The, the cop who's scanning you driving down the way is an authority over you, but Christ is an authority over him. Your boss who's you know, waiting for you to show up on time you know, is an authority over you, but Christ is an authority over him. Your parents, if you're young enough to still have some, uh, are authorities over you, but Christ is an authority over them, over him, over them. The state, you know, the, the, the rulers of the, uh, the magistrates, uh, local and national, federal, and even the global cabal that's been meeting of late, um, they have in some ways, not all of them, have some authority. Um, but none that surpass the authority of Christ, who you've been called to. You have not necessarily, well, actually, you have not been called, frankly, to serve your mother or your father or your boss or the cops, or the president, or any of those kind of things. Not directly. Because all authority in all of those spheres have been given to them by Christ. You're called to serve Christ, period. He says, if you're not willing to give up father, mother, wife, husband, son, daughter, brother, sister, then you're not worthy of my calling. You're not worthy to follow after me. So, so we only submit to all of those lesser authorities because we submit to the grandiose lordship of Christ. And he says that all things are put under his feet and he's been given his head over all things. Not just in the age to come, one day eventually things will be nice. But now here in, in, in this world where we live, doesn't feel that way all the time, does it? When you're looking over the budget and the cash is not coming in and you're worried and you're staying up late and you got to, you know, how are we going to make the bills this month or whatever? Are, 
Are you thinking that Christ is Lord over your world today? No, you're not. You're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you're hoping that you can finagle away whatever you got to do to get the dollars in the door. Those kind of things. When you're, uh, you know, get, you get the bad news from you know, the doctor. It turns your world upside down. Uh, are you reminded, do you remember, do you believe that Christ is Lord over your physical body today? Just like over this new glorious, whatever it looks like, body in the new heavens and new earth. Yes, he's Lord over both. He's in control of all things. And we need to remember that. That's how we can have confidence in the power of God at work for, in those who are effectually called unto Christ now as well as in the life to come. And so he goes on in that letter in Ephesians um, in chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, totally bound and subjected to him, not to the emperor, not to the Pharisees or the chief priests, but to the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Um, so there's something in there that... that The calling to which we have been called, this effectual calling, this fellowship with Jesus Christ himself is a worthy calling. And to the degree that we are flippant in reminding ourselves of that, to the degree that we forget, to the degree that we go about our busy days and don't remember that it's him who we serve in everything that you do, when you get in the car to drive home, when you're cooking the food, when you're serving your kids, when you're whatever you're doing, it's him that you're serving. This is a worthy calling because of who it is that is the called, the caller, because of who it is that we serve. And so this is the this is the the background for for why it matters before we start looking at um, at the content of what we're going to do. All right. So. I'm going to ask you some reflective questions, but you're not going to have time to answer them. Um, so um, that's, the, that's the first part. That's our effectual calling in Christ. And from that primary calling, all other, you know, if you want to call them practical callings, the tactile things of life um, flow out. Um, is it... Is it since that's so important, since salvation in Christ, since, since belonging to the Lord, since his redemptive work is so vital, let me ask, is it more important to become a Christian politician or a Christian preacher? Um, what about a Christian economist or a Christian missionary? Should believers devote themselves to ecclesiastical work? Or some kind of work for the kingdom outside of the church. In other words, which is more important, the cultural mandate, we see in Genesis, go forth, subdue the earth, take dominion. Or the evangelistic mandate, like we see in the Great Commission, go make disciples of the nations, baptize them. 
The cultural mandate says that all things are to be subdued to the purposes of God. We get that in Genesis 1.28. Fill the earth and subdue it. And the Great Commission says that we're to make disciples of all nations. So which is more important, subduing the earth and bringing all under the lordship of Christ, under the order of God, or converting souls, the souls of sinners, uh, through the preaching of the word? Which has priority for the Christian today? And what is the proper goal or aim of Christian living today? Um, in light of the revelation of Scripture across the whole of both the Old and New Testaments, um, how are Christians supposed to prioritize the way that they steward their resources and, resources and spend their lives? Well, we've already you know, kind of talked about it in, in past discussion, but we believe in both sola scriptura and tota scriptura. That scripture alone is our only ultimate authority in life as the very word of God. And that all of scripture, start to finish, is breathed out by him and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second Timothy 3. So for those who uh, mistakenly, like the monastics of old, um, continue on with this Gnostic uh, idea that, that the spiritual is good and the, you know, the, that the soul is good and the, the soil is bad, that the uh, spiritual is good and, and all the physical is bad. Um, you know, what do you do someone, with someone uh, when he or she is converted? What do you do if he's a judge or a politician or whatever? How do you disciple him and train him up to be a follower after Christ? Or maybe he's a pilot, or maybe he's a, I don't know, looking around the room, I don't know what all you guys are doing, a doctor or a salesman or a, you know, are you supposed to drop that and, uh, and, and run into the pasture? That happened in the early 1900s, you know, the revivalism, late 1800s, early 1900s, and everybody said, well, if I, I'm converted, i got to serve the Lord, and so I'm going to pull out of this dirty, gross, secular job and I'm going to either be a pastor or a missionary. And so what happened? Uh, there was an exodus of Christian influence in the legal sphere, and in the medical sphere, in education. Um, and it wasn't long after that that you started seeing um, corrupting doctrine entering in. And you started seeing um, laws that would tear down the family rather than build it up. Laws that would uh, allow for the murder of innocents rather than protecting them. When Christians abandon their post in the world, the world suffers for it. It's important that we submit ourselves to Christ as Lord and live out of that reality in every sphere of life so that his redeeming work of creation will spread as far as the curse is found. <clears throat> so we're not just saved from something like sin, we're saved for something. Yes? So is there a, I mean, I want the answer to the question. It's a good question. Um, they are, we're going to, they are of equally ultimate importance. And I'm going to try to explain that by aping a, a lecture from uh, Dr. Greg Bonson, who was this OPC pastor and professor at Westminster. Um, 
seminary. So um, I will give a, a hat tip, though, to this. Um, last, uh, whatever, August, last August, um, I taught the first half of a class on uh, creational worldview. Uh, you can find the, like the little, I did PowerPoints then, I don't, <clears throat> um, but uh, you can get the, the audio and the, and the notes on that um, on the church website. If you go to carriagelanepres.com, click on adult education, you can see all the historic list, and there's one on creational worldview. The first couple of lessons uh, talk about this in, in pretty great detail, uh, creation lost and regained, and then creational normativity, and it talks about sort of the history of why uh, especially here in the West, evangelicalism had a narrow understanding of what the gospel was, that the, the evangelion became uh, just, let's just soteriologically save a soul, pluck them right out, and let's just hope, hope that, you know, rack up the credit cards and hope that God comes in time for us and not have to pay the bill. Like, cause every, let, let's just get out of here and, and so save as many as we can and don't worry about all the, like, grow them up and plant them and make them pursue the kingdom. And... And we're suffering for that. So there's a whole bunch of detail there if you'd like. Um, But okay, so back to that that lecture that I mentioned to answer your question. Good question, Joy. Thanks for holding me to the uh, feet to the fire. So he says um, there's a reciprocal relationship between those two mandates, and each has its own priority and importance. He gives three reasons for each. So on the one hand, he would say the cultural mandate has a priority over the evangelical mandate. So the dominion, the Genesis mandate has has a priority over uh, the Matthew 28 Great Commission. And he says it for three different reasons. One, historically it has a priority because God was interested in subduing the earth even before there was a need for any redemption. He wanted to have his kingdom come to fruition in all walks of life even prior to the fall of man. So historically, the cultural mandate has precedence, has a priority. Definitionally, it, it, in the, this is a uh, nerd alert um, in terms of like <clears throat> um, theology. So it sets the terms for God's redemptive, um, you know, an evangelistic mandate. It speaks in terms of seed and land. Norm taught a class on covenant theology a year or so ago, and, and he, this was a couple of the elements that he would have brought up then. Um, after the fall, the redemptive mandate from the proto-evangelion in Genesis 3 there, uh, it's, it's worked out in terms of the seed of the woman and that man is to labor among the land. When God gives promise to Abraham, it's his seed that will bless the nations and a land which he will be given. In the Davidic covenant, his seed will sit upon the throne and he will rule over a land. And in Christ, it is the seed, he is the seed of the woman, and yet all power and authority in heaven and on earth is given to him as his kingdom. Seed and land. So in this cultural mandate, in one sense, you can't make sense of the redemptive mandate. This is sort of how you should say it. Um, except in the light of the cultural mandate. This one doesn't even make sense. First Adam failed, so second Adam has to come and finish the job. He's got to essentially correct us back so that we can finish what we were. Um, And then ultimately, so the ultimate goal of all things, why is God redeeming us? After reading us us of our sin and guilt, we might, as it were, get back on track promoting his kingdom as it ought to have been done initially. And the new heavens and the new earth are going to be a situation where the cultural mandate is carried out. And in one sense already has been carried out. God redeems us that we might become kingdom workers, that we might subdue all areas of life and bring about the kingdom for his glory. So on the one hand, the cultural mandate has priority historically, definitionally, and ultimately. 
But on the other hand, the evangelistic mandate has priority over the cultural one. And here are three reasons there, too. On the one hand, um, as the means, uh, it has priority, it's prior, uh, just as the means is prior to the end. So, um, I'm hungry, the end is that I not be hungry, the means is that I eat the food. I can't not be hungry unless I eat the food. And so, um, the cultural mandate will never be fulfilled until the evangelistic mandate is. I'm really hungry, I missed breakfast, I was doing something. Um, uh, you've got to get people saved so that they can receive and work out their kingdom callings. We covered that earlier. Um, so, But also the evangelistic mandate has priority over the cultural one. Um, just as, the speci- as it's the specific focus of life in this fallen age. Okay, He said, since we've fallen, the evangelistic mandate is now front and center. Uh, we need to see people redeemed. People need to be saved. If we said we can't actually have a... You know, we can't live out our true callings to pursue and you know, bring the kingdom into all of its fruition outside of redemption in Christ, well, there's the bottleneck. And so in that sense, it becomes um, a specific focus of, based off our circumstances right now. People need to be saved. Christ is calling men to himself and, and all nations to repent. Um, the specific focus of our lives is redemption today. And it also has a priority over the cultural mandate in the sense that it has an urgency that the other does not. Um, Work existed in the garden before the fall, and God said that it was good. Work will exist in the new heavens and the new earth after everything's made right and sin is no more. Um, God's not in a hurry to see uh, his kingdom come to all fruition because there is no end to that process. It's infinite. We will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And it will continue from glory unto glory. It will continue. He will unveil more and more and more and we'll continue to explore and grow. And I don't know what it'll be like other than it'll be wonderful. And you'll finally get to do some work without the sin which hurts so much in the process and disappoints so much in the process. So one has an urgency over the other one, both in in order of priority as well as an urgency whereby Paul was willing to forfeit his ordinary cultural pursuits, the things that we'll do forever in heaven, uh, in the new heavens and new earth here on this rock. Um, He was was willing to, to forfeit those for the salvation of men. He said he'd be all things to all people, that by some means some might be saved, Uh, He was willing to give up his pay, his benefits in society, his own leisure, all of his cultural pursuits, uh, if need be, that some men might be saved. So it has that type of uh, urgency. So they're both equally ultimate. Uh, Cultural work versus church work is not a proper lens. Different individuals um, are called to different pursuits related to each of the mandates, and they serve each other. Each has its own kind of priority. So um, what does that look like practically in a given... Yes, sir. Important to get it right? Yeah. Which, which you are. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Yes. Amen. This is a good point. I'm the father of a preacher over there. <clears throat> um, so for those who didn't hear, he said it's important to get it right. Don't. Don't uh, don't be a hireling. Don't 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 pursue 
ministry because you think it's lofty when it's not something that God's actually calling you to do. Um, and, and then also don't uh, ignore the call if he is calling you. Um, so, good point, Ames. Um, practically in a, in, a, like in a local body like ours, we're the, we're the bride of Christ, um, there are going to be some of us who have, I mean, everybody's got different gifts, um, different areas of proficiency. And, they're, and, and, and when you say gifts, it's not all churchy gifts. Uh, when God was building the temple, or has called, you know, having, it, having it built, remember what it said? Um, those who were the craftsmen whom he called, he had to give more of the Holy Spirit for them to have the capacity to, to work with their hands to, to refinish furniture. You know, that takes more of the Holy Spirit. Um, Elizabeth Elliot used to say, when you're, I've got a little five and a half year old, I you know, brush her hair at night beforehand. She used to say, you know, when you comb your, your kid's hair, you're bringing order out of chaos in exactly the same way that the Spirit did as it hovered over the waters in the beginning of creation. It brought order out of chaos. Um, you know, God is sovereign over all things, and, and, and we serve him in every sphere. Um, and so we need to um, see that, value that, and, and pursue that with, with all of our might. Um, not because, here's, here's, a, here's a ditch to not fall into. Let's say I'm gifted by God at doing X. I'm a really good mathematician, or I'm a really good engineer, I'm a really good whatever. Well, let me just pedal to the metal on that so that I can accomplish all that I can in this world because God's, like, I'm going to spend, it's like the Corinthians. Uh, they, they believed that they had, um, whatever you call it, like a hyper-realized eschatology. They thought they were already living in the heavens and the earth because they were, they were smart, they were rich. It was like the, uh, um, you know, it was this big social hub. Um, it was the second or third largest city in the whole Roman Empire. It's right there in a little port city, so everybody came through. They got... Um, hyper-realized eschatology. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and so we can err when we, uh, when, when we do utilize the things that God has given us to do for wrong ends. Um, that's why it's important for us to remember the why of what we're doing. There's no way we're going to get moving through here. So there's this, um, all right, Christians, Bonson said it this way, he said, Christians ought not be heartless nor blind. They're heartless when they lack compassion for the lost and are indifferent to the Great Commission. But they're blind when they don't see that the goal of redemption is bringing all of culture under the sway of Jesus Christ. That is to say, it's obscurantist to say that salvation only pertains to my soul and not to the whole world. We sing at Christmas time generally, but we should sing it always. Isaac Watts' song, Joy to the World. Remember those lyrics? Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. In the third stanza, he says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Where all has sin had its destructive grip? You know, we believe in total depravity. Not that we're all as bad as that we could be, but if sin were blue, we'd be blue all over. That there is no point under you know, the sun, which has not been, uh, you know, accursed due to sin. And so when Christ redeems, he's going to redeem everything that the curse, he's going to undo all that the curse has done. Cornelius Van Til said, the sweep of redemption 
is as broad as the sweep of sin. So, um, how far does Christ's lordship reach? I want to give you guys like a little uh, overview of a Christian throughout history if we have time. But um, Some of you have heard of John Frame, systematic theologian. He summarized the Bible this way. I think it's neat. He said, the message of the Old Testament is that Yahweh is Lord. Um, that was in my reading this morning. Um, Exodus something. Where, where he's sending the plagues and he says, Pharaoh will know that I am Lord because of what I'll do. Yeah. Um, so uh, he says the message of the Old Testament is that Yahweh is Lord. And the message of the New Testament is what? That Jesus is Lord because he and the Father are one. <clears throat> if you wanted to sum it all up, and that was actually the first confession of the church, of the early church. First confession was Christ is Lord. It's, um, it's so central to the doctrine of salvation and membership within the body of Christ that Paul wrote it this way in Romans 10.9. He says, if you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, but just how pervasive is Christ's lordship, and where all does his authority reach? There's an, an interesting passage in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Um, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 20. He's describing what it will be like when the Messiah... You know, comes and um, all is made right. And he says, And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. So when the horses would ride through the city, they had bells so that people could hear them coming. It's kind of like a, a horn on a car today, so you wouldn't get you know run over or whatever when you're turning around a building. This little tiny, minor, obscure, nothing burger of a of a facet of society, the bells on the horses. All the way down to there, they will have inscribed upon them, holy to the Lord. Everything is set apart unto him. Everything is consecrated unto him. There's not... Um, the man I wanted to talk to you guys about, which, yeah, um, not happening, is uh, Abraham Kuyper. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things he's famous for saying is, uh, there is not one square inch over the whole domain of all of human creation, over which Christ himself does not cry, mine. Everything belongs to him. Um, yeah, so perhaps we'll have time. Uh, I, I wanted to bring up Kuiper because he's the one that kind of fleshed out this idea of sphere sovereignty. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks. We're going to look at some of the spheres of life and how our calling works out that way. So maybe I'll get to do a little intro to him at the first of next week when we talk about work. But uh, suffice it to say, um, he, he, did a, uh, uh, he devoted his entire life um, to uh, fleshing out what it meant to serve the Lord in every sphere of life, in politics, in uh, new, he started a newspaper, started schools, started his own political party, started a denomination, like um, this crazy guy that we should never try to live up to because it's impossible. Um, but... Um, Robert Godfrey, some of you guys know him from Ligonier. He's the chairman of Ligonier Ministries and a historian. He said um, his vote for the most influential person in all of Christendom since John Calvin would be Abraham Kuyper. Um, and uh, today, one of the things that our culture tells us is 
you you don't get to have a public faith. You have to have it. You have to keep it keep it private. Um, there was a PCA elder um, up in Pennsylvania. He died in '05, but he wrote uh, a book um, called. Uh, the, the Practice of Political Spirituality, Episodes from a Public Career of Abraham Kuyper. He, he lived, it was, you know, 1900 or so when he was doing this, and so it's very different today. What, we, what, we, what we're up against is the idea that you need to keep your faith to yourself. Um, but let me just close with this. We do have a personal God. Our faith is personal, but not a private God. When the world says personal religion, what they mean is private. Keep your mouth shut, is what they're saying. We do have a personal God. He's one God. He's Trinitarian. He exists in three persons. And we know him personally. He knows our name. It was written down in his book. Christ died for you and for me personally. He paid for my own personal sins. But he's not a private God. You cannot hush him. You know, As C.S. Lewis said in Aslan, he is not a tame lion. And Paul tells us in Romans 1 that God is so public in his revelation, so not private in his actions, that he made himself evident to all of mankind from the very beginning of mankind through the very creation of the world. And he's done this not in some nebulous or confusing way and not in some quiet or hidden way, but in such a clear and evident to all type of way that all men are without excuse for not recognizing both that he exists and how he exists. They are to recognize him in such a way as to thank him for creating them that they are to recognize his godness and they are to worship him. And those who fail to do so are not excused due to a lack of clarity, but they are rather condemned in their denial of him through the necessary suspension of his truth in their failure to rightly worship him. Last point. God is personal, but he is not private. And as those made in his image, you and me, tasked with bearing that image before the entire world, we ought not be private in our worship and adoration and service of him through our lives. It's put like this in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for being our God and our King. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for having all authority in heaven and on earth where we live right now so that we don't have to rest in our own strength and we don't have to try and figure things out on our own because we never, ever could. But help us, Father, to see Christ more clearly, to see his reach more palpably in every arena of our lives. Help us to think biblically that we might um, make decisions and, and bring every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ so that in everything that we do, we might give you glory and enjoy you here in this world and in the world to come. Help us now as we go to worship you. Let us offer a good sacrifice of praise and worship you in spirit and truth. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.